Hello and welcome to this best of 2018 edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Coming up, I will be speaking to June Kenton, director of luxury lingerie company Rigby Impeller, about the loss of their royal warrant. And I'm Tony Honigberg, and I will be speaking to Fires Mugal with the results of the 2018 No to Hate Crime Awards, and to Flora Frank, who at the time of speaking had run 37 marathons, but who knows by now that could be 38 or more. And we'll also hear what happened when Clive Roslin spoke to Lord Eric Pickles as he gave us his reaction to the letter from eight members of the House of Lords rebuking the plans for the Westminster Holocaust Memorial. And if that's not enough, at the end of the show, we'll be having a laugh at our expense with some of our outtakes from 2018. And we'll also have a big announcement. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And on the line, I have Fires Mugal, who is the founder of the No to Hate Crime Awards. Now, we spoke to Fires a couple of weeks ago on the show about the awards. And the ceremony was held last week. And Fires is going to talk to us today about the winners. Fires, firstly, can you tell me who won the awards this year? As ever, we try to get a wide range of individuals to be nominated. So we had individuals with facial disfigurations who had challenged prejudice against them all their lives. These were young people. There was one individual who was in his early 20s challenging that. He won. There was an individual called Ahmed Nawaz who had suffered a terrorist Taliban attack, which led to the murder of over 130 of his, of his school friends in Pakistan, who won an award, who was with us on the night. We had individuals who were Srebrenica survivors of the genocide who had been doing education work in the UK. We had local authorities, and then we had members of parliament who were standing up. Paula Sheriff was nominated as parliamentary upstander for 2018. And then Luciana Berger won the Joe Cox Memorial Award. So it was a real range of parliamentarians, civil society activists, young people, and organizations working across the board to challenge hate at this time. Tell me a little bit now just about the No to Hate organization. Well, No to Hate were a concept that I came up with about three years ago. It's a concept that's part of Faith Matters as the organization, but the No to Hate Crime Awards, I believed, would be a platform for hate crime agencies and those activists challenging hate to be able to be not just honored, but to actually come together and feel a sense of solidarity within a family. Now, why did I want to do that? What's the purpose of that? Uh, Apart from having a nice dinner and and honoring people, the fact of the matter is, you know, the climate in the country has changed, both for Jews, Muslims, disabled people. Sadly, there is more hate around. And, And I believe that we needed to come together. We needed to find a coalescing point. We needed organizations to link up and to feel part of a bonded unit so we can work much more effectively. So the awards do that, but they also honor and put on the social policy map for politicians the fact that hate crime is something we need to actively continue tackling. So those were the reasons why uh, I came up with the concept. And, and then Richard Benson and I have developed that. Richard is the chair now. A Muslim and a Jew have developed that because I think both of our communities feel the sense of rising intolerance. And sadly, we have voiced it as communities, but the struggle continues on. What's the selection process for the winners of the No Awards? 
So the selection process was obviously when the nominations come in, we will then do a number of due diligence checks. So we don't want to have nominations of people, for example, who may be part of extremist groups or far right groups. We ensure that that due diligence is done. It then goes on to a community judging panel, which involves a number of hate crime organizations. That's our community judging panel. I think at this point we had probably about 14, 15 organizations at the community judging panel this year who were oversighting and sifting through the application process. And then they will push forward the runners-up to another panel. And that panel consisted of former ministers. It consisted of journalists. It consisted of people tackling hatred, but also grooming issues. So people who are social activists at a much higher level and that second judging panel then made the decision after you know detailed discussions that last a whole day on all of the runners-up that have been pushed from the community judging panel. How many people did you have put forward for it? There was approximately between, I think, 30 to 35 people were runners-up for the total award categories. So there were about between three and five runners-up for each award. And that's what went through. But But actually, we had over 160 public nominations. So, you know, that's where we were, 160 public nominations. There were actually about 210 in total. Uh, 50 of them didn't give enough information. 160 went through with detailed set of information. We ended up with 35 going forward. And then we had nine award winners and two were given special, three were given special awards. If my maths works out. <laughs> it sounded okay to me, but I'm not a mathematician <laughs> either. Tell us about the evening. How did that go? How did that run? Fantastic. Fantastic. Look, I mean, fantastic. We had 350, 360 people in a room, all of them energized, all of them, I think, feeling the energy of young people challenging hate. You know, you look at Rory, that individual who was fighting facial disfiguration and prejudice against individuals with those kind of issues. Rory stood up on stage and said, you know, I've never got anything in my life. At points, I thought I'd commit suicide. At points, I thought, you know, I couldn't continue on. But I carried on. And this is another part of the commendation that society gives me, the strength to, to keep putting the message that actually there is hope for people. There is a future. Don't give up and keep going. You know, it's people like Rory that brought the house down. And I think that's what people took away from it, an energizing event seeing the goodness in our society, seeing young people who don't have to challenge this, standing up, putting up with a lot of nonsense in life, just to give the message that there is hope, that we can overcome, and that actually intolerance can be broken through education and other ways. And I think that's the purpose of what people took away from the night, that there's a lot of work to be done, but re-energized to do that work. So this is intolerance against people with all sorts of problems, not just people with disabilities. So yeah, might this be right. religious intolerance, gender and sexual orientation and anything like that? It's a fairly wide picture, isn't it? A wide spectrum. It's a wide spectrum. So you're right. It's disability, it's faith, it's sexuality, and it continues on. The list will continue on. It would also, we also included misogyny in that. We also included misogyny. Now, it's important to say this. So some people say, oh, well, but, you know, is misogyny a hate crime? Let me explain this. There's this public debate that's going on. Why did we include it? The fact is that if you look at, for example, anti-Muslim hate or anti-Muslim bigotry at a street level, it affects the majority of them are visible Muslim women who are the target of it. But we know from a lot of the work we do within the organization that a lot of these women, when they are abused, they are abused with anti-Muslim hate. They're also abused with sexualized language. 
And the perpetrator tries to use the sexualized language to demean and intimidate and sometimes humiliate the woman because she is perceived to be very religious with a headscarf on. But the reason he's also targeting her in a sexualized nature is because she's a woman. So there is a clear intersectionality of gender and the identity of being a Muslim. So, so we include that because misogyny does play a significant role in the language of hate that is directed towards women. Indeed. It's quite clear. Indeed. Do you intend to do the award ceremony every year, unfortunately? I mean, it would be lovely if you didn't have to, presumably. But well, um, is this something that's likely to go on on an annual basis? This will go on an annual basis. So three years, three years, we've been running these events now. It's the biggest we've had this year. So 360 people. Last year was about 210. The year before was about 130-odd. And so we're growing every year. Now, we're growing. It's a good thing. But the fact is hatred is also growing. So more people are coming in on board because they see that. So it's an annual event. It will continue on. I, both Richard and I, are considering how do we widen this out to Europe because – if you ask me, the real battleground is Europe as well. The fact that the far right are taking hold politically in huge chunks of Europe today is a real concern. And the fact that far right politics are being legitimized in some of those countries means we need something like this. And I, I'm working with Richard to try to get this out there to mobilize Europe and get these agencies in different countries to come together and hold such events because we can put it on the political map. And by doing so, get some of civil society to push back of what's happening in Europe today. This obviously costs money, but how can people get involved with your organization? Well, they can email us on the notahatecrimeawards.org website. You know, please email us. We will come and engage, meet with you. If you want to volunteer, if you want to donate, if you want to be part of us, if you want to help organize, get involved. You know, the thing I would just say as a parting statement is – Right now, there is a battle for hearts and minds. Let's, let's be honest about it. You know, many of us 10 years ago, I've been doing this work for 25 years, 10 years ago, I would have never considered this country would be in a situation where, just for example, Jews and Muslims feel quite insecure. Who would have thought that? So nobody else is going to help us out this mess. We have to help ourselves. And that means stepping up. I say that Jewish communities have been stepping up for decades, millennia, for their rights just to live as equal human beings. And I'm saying that that fight continues on. The struggle continues on. But right now, given social media, given all the connectivity we have, we have to challenge this hate because if it takes root like a virus, it will take two, three generations to get rid of, or not get rid of, but reduce it. Mm. So now is the time to step up because if we do not, then everybody's rights are going to be affected. And the Britain we love and the Britain that took in the kinder transport, the Britain that took me in as a refugee from Uganda – I came in as a refugee from Uganda. That Britain may well be completely different Britain we ever remember than what we see ahead. We have to defend the values of this country. Faiz Mughal, thank you very much for talking to us today on The Jewish Views. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News, and I'm about to talk to Lord Pickles, who's the Honorary Vice Chair of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, and I want to talk about how eight Jewish peers of the House of Lords have submitted a letter to the Times rebuking the proposed Westminster Holocaust Memorial. Now, you, Lord Pickles, I know are very keen and have, have got quite rightly irritated by this. Why do you think they've done it? I don't know. That's something 
that uh, you should ask them. I can't uh, possibly understand why that should be the case. These are colleagues that I know, and they've not spoken to me about it. Uh, so the, well, I've understood a number of them had some reservations about it, and it would have been very nice if they'd spoken to me first. I should mention perhaps at this point that we did invite all eight peers who signed the letter to take part in this show. However, those who have replied to us have declined. And of course, they are welcome to take part in future episodes of The Jewish Views if they so wish. But the building hasn't even been started being built yet, has it? And yet they're complaining about that. Yes, I understand. Now, regularly, I understand that a number of them don't like the look of it. But it was a competition advertised internationally, which we had a number of very distinguished architects uh, competed. The competition was for the specific site. It wasn't for anywhere else in London. We had an exhibition in Westminster Hall that they could have looked and uh, contributed to. It was taken around the country to the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Assembly, a number of other locations, and over 11,000 members of the public made a contribution. Now, maybe they lived very busy lives and hadn't noticed that. They've complained about the fact that it's being built in that particular place, and yet the Westminster Park is really rather untidy and unpleasant at the moment, and it could help it greatly, couldn't it? Well, I wouldn't say it was unpleasant, but this is a park that I've known, well, close to 40 years, and uh, I've sort of walked in it since I've been a Member of Parliament and a Member of the House of Lords, so you can say I've walked in it for the best part of 30 years. I know very well it does suffer for poor uh, drainage, so it tends to get very muddy in winter and uh, very dusty in summer. Additionally, the drainage is not helping the trees. The walkways are not really accessible by in, in anybody that uh, is in a wheelchair. And we would improve this. We would put in better grass. We would take better care of the trees, put in better, better facilities for people in, in wheelchairs. And after all, we're only talking about 7% of the park will be taken up above ground by the memorial. The memorial itself, does it look very modern and and rather, to quote the, the peers who've, who've objected, and rather against everything it stands for? Yes, well, I understand. Uh, they, um, they don't like the design. Well, I wasn't part of the panel that picked it. It's from an international architect who's won all kinds of awards. We had a large panel of people that made the final selection. We consulted on the design. As I said, 11,000 people contributed to that. And, you know, as I walk around London, I see many monuments that aesthetically don't please me, but I've never felt that my views were greater than the people who put them in. And it would it will be a most magnificent example of the Holocaust, won't it? I mean, it will be, and it will be in the right place. I can't talk about the design. I find it an attractive and 
exhilarating design, but I, I kind of recognize that that isn't a universal view. But the reason it is there, and the reason why this site is better than any site considered, it is on the street of power and of government, starting from the Houses of Parliament, going along Whitehall, Downing Street, beside it to the two great ministries that dealt with the Second World War, and it is on that avenue that the great decisions with regard to our involvement in the Second World War were taken, so that's one of the reasons why it, it, it's there. There is no other site that's being considered. Well, of course, it's the ideal place, I would have thought, because Westminster is the home of democracy, if you like. Yeah. And what we wanted to do is to remind people that Parliament is there to oversee and to protect human rights. And, and we recognise that democracy is, is the final bulwark against uh, tyranny. But it's also there to remind members of Parliament and peers that Parliament has the power to oppress as well as to protect. And it was a compliant legislature in Germany that brought in the Nuremberg Laws. I know this might sound a bit of a strange question, but why does it mean so much to you? We are at a time when the last survivor of the Holocaust for the United Kingdom is likely to no longer be with us. I think within the next 10, 15 years, that's likely to be the case. We know that after great events, after the last survivor, there is a big reassessment. We saw that after the French Revolution, all the, the standard sort of history books were created and started in the 1850s. We've seen ourselves with the last survivor of the First World War disappearing. Now, slightly over 100 years ago, my grandfather, my grandfather Pickles Edgar, walked out of a trench in the Somme, and a few moments later, most of his friends were killed. Nobody doubts for a second that my grandfather came out of that trench, but there is a number of people, wicked people, that seek to pretend that the Holocaust did not exist, or, or would seek to minimise it, who would see, or would seek to suggest the numbers weren't right, or the conditions were right, or that it was a big bout of disease, a flu, and it is massively important for us to remember that a government in one of the most civilised countries in the world decided to murder its Jewish citizens and to murder the Jewish citizens of Europe. And we will look at this in the Learning Centre and we'll look through it in British eyes. And while we did an awful lot of things that were excellent and good and worthy, we'll also look at those things where we were less than worthy. I would like to say that uh, I have seen the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin, and I'm sure that your one will be as beautiful and as good as that one. And thank you very much indeed for talking to us. My pleasure. 
Well, as you've been hearing, luxury lingerie firm Rigby and Pella has been stripped of its royal warrant that it's held for many a year. It comes after the publication of director June Kenton's autobiography Storm in a D-Cup that was released last year. Well, I've been speaking to June to get her reaction to this, and I started by asking her to tell us when she first found out the news. Oh, it was, it was last May. Couldn't believe that they didn't like the book seems extraordinary and you've got to read the book yourself to see what you think but I haven't haven't found anybody who thinks what I said was at all unpleasant or not what one should say. What I find extraordinary and speaking as someone who has read your book cover to cover and may I just say not because I'm in your presence because I wholeheartedly mean this it's riveting so to anyone who has not read it I urge you to do so because it is Well, it is truly fascinating. You've lived an extraordinary life and continue to do so. But of course, this is just one horrible twist in it. But I couldn't see anything in that book. In fact, I would go so far as to say I distinctly remember one of the opening lines of your book, correct me if I'm wrong, is that for those who want to read this, thinking they're going to get secrets about the palace, you've picked up the wrong book. You even almost say that. You precursor it before you start. Well, I've I had the raw warrant for nearly 40 years and I'm sure nobody's ever read or and I have ever said anything at all that has gone on in Buckingham Palace. We even used to use other people's carrier bags to deliver stuff so it didn't have Rigby and Pella on it. We were that careful. So when something went into the royal household, into Buckingham Palace, nobody knew what it was because it wasn't Rigby and Pella a carrier bag. I have never, ever spoken, and nor have my staff, about anything that we've ever seen in the fitting room. And sometimes you hear the most unbelievable stories, but it's not something that you do. You you are being very discreet, and I have always been discreet. And I would suggest as well that probably in your line of work anyway, that let's not overlook it's not just because it's royalty we're talking about here. Discretion probably goes with it anyway, just because why would you go around talking about your work? Well, I mean, you don't come out the fitting room and start to say what you've seen. It's not anything for anybody else. It's between you and the customer. And royalty is very much the same. It's no hardship to us because we never, ever spoke about anything. Can you... I know this might be a bit sort of horrible to make you relive it, but when you got the letter informing you, what was going through your mind when you were reading the words that were in front of you? shock. I just couldn't speak. I just was so shocked because I just could not believe that I said anything that anybody would take umbrage about in this book. And it didn't mention in the letter why? Yes. I have no business to divulge anything at all in my book, which I don't think I have. But obviously I mentioned when I went to the Queen for the very first time, because it is a very, very wonderful, very scary thing to do. But, you know, I I didn't think in the book it really meant an awful lot. You have reacted to this by apologising to Her Majesty, haven't you? Without question. I've written to her, I've written to her, her dresser, and... 
I wouldn't have had it happen for the world. I just perhaps didn't realise that I really and truly should have shown Buckingham Palace before it was printed. I really didn't think that there was anything in there that needed to have a censorship about. But does that mean then in that case you regret writing your autobiography? No, I've, I wrote the autobiography for my children, for Rigby and Pella, how we rescued Rigby and Pella and it's become a national name. It's worldwide. It's international, isn't it, really? It's worldwide. And I feel very, very proud of that. So I wouldn't have done anything at all, knowingly, to, to spoil our name. Well, Storm in a D-cup by name, Storm in a T-cup by nature, how extraordinary the reaction to this has been. Well, I suppose anything to do with bras or of that sort of subject is always a bit, hello, hello, hello. But... <laughs> But what can what can you do? I've been involved with hello, hello, hello bras for years. And for me, it's perfectly normal. But in particular, this story about the warrant being taken back has gone everywhere. I mean, I've, I've heard that it's been reported in Australia as well yeah. or something like that. Oh, it the, seems bizarre. The, the whole world knows. Please buy it and tell me honestly what you think. But can we be fair about this as well and say that actually you're not the first individual? Let's clarify this, because is it you as an individual who holds the warrant or is it Rigby and Pella? An individual holds the royal warrant. Right. It is me. But you are not the first individual slash on behalf of organisation who has lost a royal warrant. But yet when that's happened in the past with various brands such as I think Hoover and Volkswagen have been some that have gone as well before you... I don't remember quite as much fuss being made. Well, Rigby and Pella and bras is a, a bit of a naughty subject. And if you want to make it naughty, you can. And I suppose it was inevitable that when it did come out, that people would have been really, really shocked. So because you found out about this a while back, didn't you? Oh, I found out. I knew last May what had happened. I'd really got over it, really. But... I don't want to put you on the spot, but why why did you not, as it were, go public with that at the time? Well, it's not something to boast about. You don't boast about losing a royal warrant. It's it's a big, big shock. What happens next? I assume that Rigby and Pella, which although we should be clear, actually, you've... Is it fair to say that you've sort of stepped back a bit from Rigby and Pella anyway? we sold Rigby and Pella in 2011, and but but still, I do go out talking for all sorts of charities. Got high coming up, and it's something that I feel I'm putting back into charity by going out and speaking about because I'm a speaker, and and as a speaker, they can advertise it and have an evening. And to me, that is what I'm putting back into life. So is that what happens next now, hopefully, just more of that and and carrying on doing what you do so well? Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't stop going out and speaking about it because it it is a money spinner for different charities. So I'm still going to do it. On the plus side, though, this has sparked a renewed interest in your book and it would appear as if it's flying off the shelves. So if anyone wants it, I suppose they've got to go and get a copy. (laughs) 
absolutely, absolutely. It's it's certainly a great side to this whole saga. Buy the book and find out what what I've said and what you think is bad about it. June Kenton, director of Rigby Impeller, speaking to me there on the loss of the royal warrant. I should point out at this stage that when asked for a comment, Buckingham Palace has said that it did not comment on individual companies. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And in the studio with us is Flora Frank. Now, Flora recently ran the London Marathon in memory of her late husband, Herbert, who died in October. Flora has run several marathons. I think this one was your 37th full marathon. And she took part in her first marathon at the age of 53. Now, do we ask how old you are, Flora? Yes, you can. I'm in my 70s. And (laughs) And you're looking extremely well. Thank you. I know why you ran this marathon, but what made you start running the marathons all those years ago? Well, it's a very strange story. I always taught at Cheder at Hebrew classes on a Sunday morning, and my brothers, Ephraim and Modi, used to run marathons. And, of course, I always gave them a very nice donation, being my brothers. But they were always running for strange causes. I will not mention them because I do not want to offend anybody. But I felt, look, it's nice to have a charity for children, cancer, anything like that. And they couldn't get one because it's very difficult to find a place. I found them a place with Norwood and Emuna. Norwood, as you know, is a marvellous organisation that helps troubled families. I put it that way because time is of the essence. Amazing. Sterling work, professional, caring and everything. And Emunah is another such organisation in Israel for also underprivileged, abused families, you know, parents on drugs. Both amazing organisations and they ran. And Norwood, it was Ravenswood at that time, gave me a place. And I said, I didn't ask for a place. If I run, I'll have a heart attack. I haven't, I've always been sporty, but I, I can't do this. I knew what my brothers were putting into it. And I didn't have that commitment, you know, running 40 miles a week leading up. I couldn't do that. They said, in other words, I think the lady doth protest too much. You know, they didn't accept it. They said, you're always running in and out. What do you matter? What's the matter with you? So I took it on. It was six weeks before a marathon and I was quite frightened. I went to see my doctor. Of course, they can't tell you very much unless you have a proper heart test and whatever else. But he said, look, just walk it. You've got six weeks to go. And my one of my brothers said, they'll laugh at you because being religious, I wear, wear a skirt and i got quite longish sleeves. And, you know, they said, they're going to look at you. And I said, no, they're not. If I'm and Moddy, it was more my brother Moddy. You know, I've seen the fun runners, the little that I watched of it, because as I said, I was always teaching at the Hays with Hebrew classes. And I was fine. In fact, one year they thought I was the dinner lady because I had a white peak cap and a white <laughs> top and a white skirt with a bin bag wrapped around my waist because I was worried in case it would rain. So one little boy said, look, mum, she's dressed as the, up as the dinner lady. So that was funny. That was very funny. And that's yeah. what made me do the marathon. I raised a lot of money the first year. I did a very good time. And every year it's been going up and up and up. And I, tr- and I nearly raised almost £15,000 this year. It's 13000 already, but I've still got a lot more money coming in. Muzzles off. That's a fantastic you. amount yeah. of money to raise. I mean, just from one marathon, that's a fantastic amount of money to raise. Mm. Now, speaking as someone myself who has never run a marathon before, and I, I'm sorry, but I, I get out of breath running a bath, never mind running a marathon. <laughs> but how would you describe the feeling? Because to me, it's mind-blowing. The thought of running or even fast walking over 20-something miles. Is it 26 miles or 26.2 it sounds to me like a mini torture in some way so what does it what is it like when you're actually running it well 
it's amazing. First of all, I don't push myself. I power walk and I can do that, thank God. But the crowds and the people who come out of their homes, the chesed, the kindness it's shown, it's just, it makes me cry. I actually get a lump in my throat and I cry every year because it's like a, a mini Yom Kippur. Everybody's at one with each other. There's no anti-Semitism. There's no racism. There's who cares about the color of your religion, whether you're rich or you're poor. We all get along together. We all help each other, unless you're one of these really, you know, runners who just can't waste a second they won't stop for you there are some of them but you know we stop I pick up banana peels from the floor I tell people watch this there's orange peels coming up because I know what to expect when the oranges are giving out but the people who come out of their homes and they give you cut you know I can't eat most of the stuff because I don't know if it's kosher I'm being honest about that and I'm proud about the fact but I say thank you darling I've got my own and I point to my bag you know and how sweet of you and how kind of you and they give me fives and and the people lining come on you can do it you can do it you can do it. it's just amazing and it's a privilege to run a marathon just to be with the crowds and the supporters and the people who come out of their houses and I want to thank them very much because it helps us it's a big you know bonus having that sort of uh, support what would you say compared to when you ran your first marathon compared to now? Has it got easier as the marathons have gone on? Or is it because now you know what to expect? It almost gets a bit harder. Well, it, no, it, it was always easy because I power walk. I don't run and I don't train a lot because I do not have the time to train. That's, and then as I get That's not advice to other marathon runners. Yes, and as way. I got older, I realised, <laughs> no, I realised at my age, I'm talking about an older person, that I'm going, if I want to carry on, and I do carry on because I've raised over 400 and about 25,000 pounds by now in all the marathons, that if I want to continue, I shouldn't train too much because it can damage your knees. My two brothers, one did three hours and 10 seconds, which is almost professional. He was gutted for that 10 seconds. He can't even do a marathon now. And the wow. other brother who did three hours and 20 something minutes, he can't do a marathon because they gave it their very best and they're younger than me. One's nearly 10 years younger than me. And what, so, do your, what do your family make of your marathon efforts? Well, they love it. They think it's amazing, you know, and they, they, they appreciate the charities. And so, and they're very proud. How well, long does your power walk take you? Well, it took from five hours, 20 minutes. Sometimes I can do over six hours this year. And normally I do about six hours, just under six hours. But this year it took me an hour longer. It took me just over seven hours because I purposefully walked slowly because I knew of the heat mm. And somebody had knocked into my knee. It's a long story. And thank God, it was nothing to do with walking. I'm telling all my sponsors out there that it wasn't overdoing anything. It wasn't, no, see, I told you. It was somebody actually knocked my knee and cricked it, if, if I can use that word. So I had to take it slowly for that reason. And thank God, the marathon, the walking is so healthy. It seemed to write my, put it right. I don't have a problem with it, thank God. We, we spoke, you mentioned your two brothers, but what did Herbert think about this when you um, first started doing the marathon well, and the subsequent years you carried on doing Herbert it? used to make jokes. But I think he, I, not I think, I know he was very proud. He used to make jokes and say, what are you doing, Herbert? Are you going to be lining the routes? And I'll have a nice sleep and I'll get there to the, at the end. And Nor would always give me a grandstand ticket. So he used to get to the uh, finish about half an hour before. And he was always very proud and it was very hard doing the Jerusalem half marathon <clears throat> and this that was my very first half marathon for various reasons and even harder doing the London marathon because he was always there mm. and he wasn't there this year but my family came to Israel and my sons and one of my grandsons Jake Richard and Gideon and Jake they came 
for the London Marathon with friends. So it was very, very comforting. Your family were there. And you know what? There's actually a very nice photo of you with your sons and your grandson that is actually on our website promoting you talking to us on this week's episode. And it looks like you've got great support around you. I do have. And they support me also, you know, monetary support as well as emotional and physical, which is very important. And all the friends, of course, that sponsor you. I I have to thank them very much because if it wasn't for them, they should be interviewed, not me. They're the heroes because if it wasn't for my supporters, my punters, whatever one calls them, I wouldn't be here, would I? Well, after 37 marathons, they must be practically bankrupt now, thanks <laughs> to you. <laughs> I, I think they are. <laughs> Do you find they're the same people that sponsor you year in, year yes, out? Yes, and I always try and find new sponsors. I like to find them. But it's amazing how people are stalwarts and they're so loyal. And every year it takes me a long time to write my letters because I'm always thanking them. I can't take it for granted. You know, it's so nice mm. of them. I say thank you for your continued and your generous support because however much they give, it's still kind. And I have to tell you that the actual running the marathon is an experience that is indescribable. What would you say to people going forward that would like to do the marathon that probably haven't or, or, or have thought that I can't do it, but I'd like to raise money? What would you tell them? I would say you can do it. Where there's a will, there's a way. I had not trained. The, only, the last race I had done was a mother's race, and I always had to come first. It was like 100 meters, and I hadn't run from one year to the next. And why I didn't have a heart attack, I have to thank God, because I said, I've got to get, I've got to be first. I don't know why. It was so competitive, and I'm not competitive with the marathon. And I was always first, but it, I you know, when I'd finished, I was almost out of breath. <laughs> so it, you know, I say anybody can do it. Well, I mustn't say that. I'm very grateful. If you're in reasonably good health, as long as you get doctor's advice and you're sensible and you don't overdo it and your body can tell you when to stop, anybody can do it. Well, I would just like to say, I would just like to say that I hope, having heard everything you've said and having met you, I hope that you're going to do at least another 37 months. Oh, I hope so, please, God. (laughs) I don't know. It all depends from up there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm, I'm sure, Flora, you will carry on going forward. You'll do lots more. Flora Frank, thank you very much for joining us on The Jewish Views. My pleasure. Okay, well, you may have heard Tony tease it towards the start of this episode of The Jewish Views, but I think it's very important for us to declare that things don't always go the way we planned. Have a little listen to this. The front line, I feel, of the um, the battle against the sort of the political... The, I knew I was going to have trouble Contagious. <laughs> The front line, I feel, of the battle against the political... Politicalisation. Politicalisation. All right, it's fine. I'll get it now. It's all right. The front line, I think, in terms of the uh, battle against the political... I can't say it. I'm going to give up. I can't say politicalisation. Politicalisation. No, it's too many syllables. It's too many syllables. All right. Why are you trying to say it? Let's say it in simple language. No, it's fine. I'll just say it in simple language. I believe in you, Richard. I think you can do this. Yeah, yeah. The front line in the battle against anti-Semitism has been fought in, in the last few years, at least, I think, on campus. If you would like more information or indeed to find out how you can book tickets, then you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.u3. What? What the hell did I just say? Good. You three. What the f*** was that? <laughs> And also to Flora Frank, who at the time of speaking had run 37 marathon marathons. And to Flora Frank... Because <laughs> there's lots of Fs in there. There could be one more, I it suppose. It could be. 
We'll also be finding out about the fascinating story of one Kadia Modelivska. Uh, Modelivska. Modelev, what was it? Kadjaski. Katja Molodovsky. Yes. We'll also be finding out about the fascinating story about Katja Molodovsky. Molodovsky. Do me to do that then? Do it quickly. Run at it. We'll also be finding out about the fascinating story about one Katja Molodovsky from Zelda Kahan No. Oh, dear. It's a wonder we've been going as long as we have, really, isn't it? Well, we do make some mistakes as we go along. Well, we're only human. That's all I can say. Thank goodness a lot of that was recorded and not live. Absolutely. Now, we also told you earlier on that there was a big announcement to come, and this is it. The announcement is that the Jewish Views is going to undergo a little bit of a change for 2019 in so much as that we will no longer be a weekly podcast. We are going to go monthly. We are hopefully going to feature some brand new and some exciting content that has not been heard to date. We are saying farewell to our friends at the Jewish News. If not in name, absolutely not on a personal level. We'll still all very much stay friends and hopefully even hear from them in the programme going forward. But it will be a bit of a refreshed look come January and at the end of January at that. It's very important to remember that you won't hear us every week, but you will hopefully hear us at the end of the month. But we'll keep you posted through our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And that's it for this episode of The Jewish Views. Thank you to our guests on this programme, but also to our guests throughout 2018 and for the past three years for coming on our programme. Thank you also to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and indeed to you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode and any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views in whatever form we may take in the future. And we wish all of you a very happy 2019. But from me, Phil Dave. And from me, Tony Honigberg. And from the whole of The Jewish Views team. Goodbye. <laughs>